Hey, this is Stu with Bitcoin and Financial Independence, and I have been thinking about today's episode for several months now, turning over some of these ideas in my mind, and I think I'm finally ready to give it a go and try to explain some of these concepts further. I've been able to organize my thoughts more and found some great resources and analogies to help me teach this better. I'm going to try to tie some things together that make Bitcoin valuable, aside from being decentralized and censorship-resistant uh, freedom money that works 24-7. I want to talk about why the price goes up and Bitcoin becomes more valuable over time. So let's start with this anti-inflation narrative of Bitcoin or the idea that Bitcoin serves as an inflation hedge. The reason for this narrative is that central banks print so much money and thus cause and create inflation. Inflation happens and we accept it and we even expect it now. We expect 2 or 3% inflation every year. As central banks flood the world, with increasingly useless and weak money, Bitcoin stands in stark contrast. It can't just be created willy-nilly, but it has to be extracted through a mining process on a set schedule that no one can interfere with, and its supply is capped at 21 million Bitcoins. So we have this infinite fiat money around the world that is constantly being printed for nothing versus the absolutely scarce money without any counterparty risk and is open, transparent, and settles quickly. Last July, I did a podcast episode, uh, episode 44, and it's called Scarcity with a Secure Network. And I haven't gone back to listen to this short eight-minute podcast, but this episode is taking it a step further. I looked at my show notes of that episode, and I just said, Bitcoin is scarce, but that alone doesn't make it valuable. Scarcity with a large, transparent, and secure network does. So let's talk about that first point. Just because something is rare does not make it valuable. It has to be desirable in some way. For example, a holographic Pokemon card. To a certain group of individuals, those cards are extremely valuable because they are rare. And for another example, we'll say uh, limited edition Nikes. This rare object has to do something for you and it can be practical or impractical. A limited edition pair of Nike shoes is no more practical than your average Skechers really other than it means something to your personality, your style, your friend group, etc. And then there's obviously practical scarce things like aluminum or iron ore or lithium that we use in our phones, you know, commodities for manufacturing. So when it comes to Bitcoin, what does it offer that is practical? And the number one practical benefit in my mind is if you live in an oppressive state or surveillance state. I would say it's extremely practical or attractive to be able to transact outside of the state's purview. Uh, and maybe another related use case would be remittances. If you have family that you're working uh, somewhere else away from them that you need to send money back to, uh, being able to do that really quickly, settle instantaneously, low fees over the Lightning Network is a really good use case. Another good use case would be places that experience hyperinflation. Bitcoin has hit new all-time highs against the local currencies of Turkey, Lebanon, and Argentina recently because they're being devalued so quickly. Even though it's not all-time highs in U.S. dollars, it is in these falling, weaker fiat currencies. The dollar is weakening over time too. It's just weakening a lot slower. But there is a lot of talk these days about de-dollarization. Countries like Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, uh, Brazil, South Africa, transacting outside of the traditional system and joining this other system called BRICS that includes a lot of these countries that are 
aligning against the U.S. So the U.S. dollar dominance as the reserve currency of the world is is trending down over time. And Janet Yellen vocalized this. She said this recently, which is kind of crazy. But these are the main practical use cases I see of Bitcoin that make it attractive to certain amounts of people that are feeling a certain pain point. In traditional economics, we have this concept, though, of supply and demand. It's really quite simple. This is where we sometimes see this model used to price Bitcoin. It's called the stock to flow model. It was made famous by this guy on Twitter who goes by the name Plan B. And you can Google this chart and find it. Um, Lookintobitcoin.com has this chart. And when I first bought my Bitcoin class in 2021, um, I took a class and I learned about this model. And I thought it was really interesting and made sense to me. The stock to flow model was only adapted to Bitcoin's issuance, I believe, in the year 2019. And the price of Bitcoin had followed it really, really closely, but the model has since broken down somewhat. And what I've come to learn is that most or all models are wrong, but some are helpful, some are useful. And I'd still say that the stock to flow is interesting, but I would not put all my faith into any one price model. But there is something there with the supply schedule of Bitcoin that drives price to some degree. Because with supply and demand in Bitcoin, there's only so much Bitcoin being mined. And right now, I believe more Bitcoin is being bought than is being mined, but I'm not sure there's more Bitcoin being bought than is being sold and mined. So Bitcoin can become available for sale through both the process of mining and existing holders selling. And I'm not sure if that's all the factors that are into it. I'm probably oversimplifying it, but that's probably why the price is somewhat in equilibrium right now around 30K is that there's kind of an equal amount of buyers with sellers of coins and coins being produced from mining. But as we come closer to what's known as the next halving, which will most likely happen in April of 2024, Bitcoin goes through these halving periods every four years. At first, it was $50 of Bitcoin every 10 minutes. In 2012, it was cut down in half to 25 Bitcoins per 10 minutes. In 2016, it went to 12 and a half. Right now, we're at 6.25 Bitcoins every 10 minutes. That happened in 2020, where it got to that level. And in 2024, it's going to drop to 3.125 Bitcoins every 10 minutes. So right now we're getting about 900 Bitcoins mined and produced every day through mining. And that's going to drop next year down to 450 per day. This will almost surely drive the price up because there's already an army of buyers out there buying up the available supply. And that available supply is going to start to dry up on exchanges. And there will just be more hype and FOMO as that price continues to go up. And this doesn't even take into consideration anything with institutional adoption or BlackRock or other ETFs coming to the market. So think of it this way. I think this is a pretty good analogy. You have a garden hose and you turn on the hose and the water comes out and it kind of just falls down. But we've all experienced this, I think. When you put your thumb on the end of that hose and you move your thumb around, you can constrain the flow of water uh, to shoot further or closer. And that's how a lot of people water their gardens is with their thumb on the end of that hose to aim and tighten it up where it needs to and loosen it up where it needs to. But you have all that water coming out. It's the same amount of water, whether you partially cover up the end of the garden hose or not. But the supply available, it gets squeezed. The area that supply has to go through is squeezed. So that's kind of what happens when there's a halving event is you have... Um, the hole gets smaller, but you've got the same amount of buyers, like the water coming through has to squeeze through a hole that is twice as small. And so 
what the water has to do to compensate is pick up speed and go further and faster. And that's kind of what it's like. So these happenings happen every four years. And that's why we usually see the price shoot up because it has to. There's a certain amount of buyers buying up the supply, but then the price has to adjust because the hole it's trying to escape through is twice as small as before. And so over time, it's, it's kind of going to end up like one of those things you put on your garden hose or you can make it uh, to be like a shower or a jet, a jet stream. It's going to be like that. At some point, the hole's just going to be really small, really focused. Eventually, in several happenings, you know, you could think of uh, the hose basically being a pressure washer hose where you can get like 4,000 pounds per square inch and you just got this tiny little hole forcing all of the water through where you can uh, clean your driveway and stuff like that. Just super high pressure. So that's one way to kind of visualize what happens with a halving. One analogy of how to think about Bitcoin with its stock to flow model and with traditional economics of supply and demand. The supply is going down on Bitcoin and it's actually fixed, but the demand is trending up as more and more people see the light and are exposed to inflation and oppression. But there's this other really interesting factor that applies to Bitcoin as a network. And that's what I talked about in episode 44. Uh, I also learned about this in 2021 on a very basic level. There's something called a Metcalf model. And Facebook's stock price pretty well correlates with this mathematical equation associated with the Metcalf model. So let's just go to Wikipedia really quick. Metcalf's law states that the financial value or impact of a telecommunications network is proportional to the square of the number of connected users in the system. So you've got the number of users squared. This law is named for Robert Metcalf and was first proposed in the year 1980, albeit not in terms of users, but rather of compatible communicating devices like fax machines or telephones. So remember fax machines because we're going to talk about that in a second. Um, there's this other concept from Kevin Kelly. He talks about this quite a bit. You may have heard of him. He started the magazine called Wired, wired.com. And he's somewhat of a futurist, a technological futurist. And he's also gone viral uh, a few times in the last few years with blog posts like uh, 68 bits of unsolicited advice and a follow-up with 99 additional bits of advice. And he talks about this stuff on his website, kcake.org. He talks about this thing he calls the law of plentitude. And so there's a series of blog posts that he wrote about this in 2009. Uh, and it's under this heading of new rules for the new economy, radical strategies for the connected world. So we're going to talk about these fax machines really quick. Uh, this blog post, I'm going to read a couple of these. Uh, this first one, it says that value flows from abundance. Plentitude, not scarcity, governs the network economy. Duplication, replication, and copies run in excess. Whatever can be made can be made in abundance. This plentitude drives value, works to open up closed systems, and spins off immense numbers of opportunities. Consider the first modern fax machine that rolled off the conveyor belt around 1965. Despite millions of dollars being spent on its research and development, it was worth nothing. Zero. The second fax machine to be made immediately made the first one worth something. There was someone to fax to. Because fax machines are linked into a network, each additional fax machine that is shipped increases the value of all the fax machines operating before it. This is called the fax effect. The fax effect dictates that plentitude generates value. 
So strong is this power of plentitude that anyone purchasing a fax machine becomes an evangelist for the fax network. Well, it kind of reminds you of Bitcoin, doesn't it? Do you have a fax machine? Fax owners ask you. You should get one because your purchase increases the worth of their machine. And once you join the network, you'll begin to ask others, do you have a fax or email or Acrobat software, etc.? Each additional account you can persuade to join the network substantially increases the value of your account. When you buy a fax machine, you are not merely buying a $200 box. Your $200 purchases the entire network of all other fax machines in the world and the connections among them, a value far greater than the cost of all the separate machines. Indeed, the first fax machines cost several thousand dollars and connected to only a few other machines, and thus they were not worth much. Today, $200 will buy you a fax network worth $3 billion. And there's about 18 million fax machines. Now, there is some limitations possibly to this. Uh, you know, it talks about this in Metcalf's Law back on Wikipedia, uh, that there might be some diminishing returns to some degree because one fax machine in one company might serve 60 workers in a company. Another fax machine might serve 30. Another might serve 10. So there might be uh, a decrease in relative value of additional connections. Uh, it says, likewise, in social networks, if users that join later use the network less than the early adopters, then the benefit of each additional user may lessen, making the overall network less efficient if the cost per users are fixed. So I'm not sure how all that is going to play out as far as Bitcoin goes, but going back to Kevin Kelly, he put out another blog post as a follow-up to that first one. Just two days later, I'll read this really quick. It's just a few short paragraphs. He says, in the network economy, the more plentiful things become, the more valuable they become. This notion directly contradicts two of the most fundamental axioms we inherited from the industrial age. The first axiom is that value comes from scarcity. Take the icons of wealth in the industrial age. Diamonds, gold, oil, and college degrees. These were deemed precious because they were scarce. The second one, is that when things are made plentiful, they become devalued. For instance, carpets. They were once rare handmade items only found in the houses of the rich. They ceased to be status symbols when they could be woven by the thousands on machines. The traditional law was fulfilled. Commonness reduces value. The logic of the network flips this industrial lesson upside down. In a network economy, value is derived from plentitude, just as a fax machine's value increases as fax machines become ubiquitous. Power comes from abundance. Copies are cheap and let them proliferate. Ever since Gutenberg made the first commodity, cheaply duplicated words, we have realized that intangible things can easily be copied, and this lowers the value per copy. What becomes valuable is the relationships sparked by the copies that tangle up in the network itself. The relationships rocket upward in value as the parts increase in number even slightly. So fax machines, TCPIP, GIF images, all born deep in the network economy adhere to this logic, but so do metric wrenches, AAA batteries, and other devices that rely on universal standards. The more common they are, the more it pays you to stick to that standard. We have an even older example in the English language. Wherever the expense of churning out another copy becomes trivial, and this is happening in more than just software, the value of standards and the network booms. In the future, cotton shirts, bottles of vitamins, chainsaws, and the rest of the industrial objects in the world will also obey the law of plentitude 
as the cost of producing an additional copy of them falls steeply. Uh, so this last sentence, there's a little bit of a problem there is that a bottle of vitamins uh, and chainsaws, they, uh, for the most part, I think, I don't know exactly, but I would assume that the prices of all these things have gone up in value because the dollar is being inflated more than technology is deflationary. So technology drives prices down and monetary policy, money printing is driving prices up. And so it's this tug of war. And in the last few years, inflation is winning more than technological innovation. So that was kind of wrong right there. I mean, some things have gone down in value, but it really just depends on what it is and how good the technology improvements are in relation to the inflation we experience in monetary policy. I'm also reading a book by uh, Jeff Booth. It's called The Price of Tomorrow, and it talks all about this, why deflation is the key to an abundant future. And uh, now that I know Greg Foss, maybe I can get Jeff Booth on the podcast as well. So I'll see what I can do there to talk about that book once I've read it. But I'm going to read one more article here. This is from July 21st, 2009, and it talks about proprietary or closed systems against open source systems, which Bitcoin is open source software and Bitcoin is totally inclusive. So let me read this and we'll talk about that a little bit. Proprietary or closed systems were once rare because industrial systems were relatively uncomplicated. Proprietary systems rose in popularity as advancing technology made it difficult to replicate a system without assistance or encroaching on patents. The creators of a closed system made a nice living. When the information economy was first launched several decades ago, the dream was to own and to operate a proprietary system, one that no one else could copy, and then let the money roll in. To a degree, that can still be done, at least for a short period, if the system is significantly superior. Uh, think of Bloomberg Terminals and Wall Street Traders Office as one example. But the network economy rewards the plentitude of open systems more than the scarcity of closed systems. It's a bit of a cliche now to blame Apple's misfortunes on its insistence that its operating system be treated as a scarce resource, but it's true. Apple had more than one opportunity to license its particularly wonderful interface, the now familiar desktop and Windows design, but backed off each time, thereby guaranteeing its eventual eclipse by the relatively more open uh, Windows systems. There is a place for isolation in the infancy of systems, but openness is needed for growth because it taps into a larger wealth. Citibank pioneered the use of the 24-hour instant cash ATMs in the 1970s. They blanketed New York City with the proprietary machines, and at first the strategy was highly successful. Smaller competing banks started their own tiny proprietary ATM networks, but they couldn't compete against the high penetration of Citibank machines. Then, led by Chemical Bank, these smaller banks banded together to form an open ATM network called PLUS. And the power of N2 kicked in. That is the equation in the Metcalf model. Suddenly, any ATM was your ATM. Citibank was invited to join the open PLUS network, but declined. Following the principle of increasing returns, the handy PLUS system attracted more and more customers and soon overwhelmed the once dominant Citibank. Eventually, the open factor forced Citibank to forego their proprietary ways and join. So there's a few more blog posts in this series, but I'll link those and I'm going to let you read those on your own. I may come back to them in a follow-up episode at some point. But what does this all mean? Well, we've seen the traditional financial system become weaponized. Canada weaponized it against their own peaceful protesting citizens. 
with the truckers' protest. America and its allies weaponized the SWIFT system with Russia and kicked it out. Uh, so these proprietary financial systems, supposedly, they can only be weaponized once. And it's created that bifurcation to where we've now got the BRICS system versus the dollar system, where most trade is settled in dollars, but it's starting to shift. Um, dollars are being dumped on foreign countries' balance sheets. They're not holding our sovereign debt. There's risk of China dropping a whole bunch of T-bills on the market, which would be really bad for the dollar. And the dollar dominance has been trending down over the last few years. Uh, but you've got China, Russia, South America, Brazil, and uh, several other countries banding together to make this alternative because the SWIFT payment network was weaponized. But then you've also got Bitcoin, which is open, which is neutral. It cannot be censored. It cannot be weaponized against anybody. So it's kind of like that ATM example in a way. And as the network continues to grow, I think some of those exclusive networks are going to fall by the wayside. And eventually the open source system is going to win out, especially for any countries that don't want to be censored. They just have to insist on settling in Bitcoin. So I'm going off track a little bit. I've been rambling long enough, but I find it really interesting that Bitcoin has this old school dynamic of supply and demand. It's a scarce asset with growing demand, but it's also got this new way of value with the law of plentitude, the value of a network, the Metcalf model, and Bitcoin is going to become more and more valuable as people join it. And so that leaves me thinking about this, this perception where people see Bitcoin as a Ponzi or a pyramid scheme because we try to get people to join the network. Uh, and I would say that because of this, there is some selfish motive that the value will go up the more people I can get to join Bitcoin. But the thing is, is that the way the world is trending, I think at some point you're going to be forced to because inflation will get so bad and government can get so oppressive. And in my mind, it's just like join the network early or join the network late. You can either choose to join it now or eventually be forced by circumstances outside your control that you have to join the network. So uh, it'd be better to join it early, in my opinion. But the more people that join it, the value is going to go up. And also, we know that the more the supply is constrained and the value is going to go up that way as long as the demand stays steady and growing. So I really just uh, I don't see a way that Bitcoin really goes down in value all the time. People think it will go to zero. But in my mind, they're going to keep printing money. They're going to keep weaponizing financial systems. Governments will continue to be oppressive. Central banks will continue to cause inflation. And when people feel enough pain, they're going to join the network. And it's so funny. I'm in these financial independence, retire early. That's the FIRE movement. I'm in all these Facebook groups. And I went into one and I posted about how my wife's business holds Bitcoin on the balance sheet now because they bank with regional banks. And if the bank goes under, they will have Bitcoin as an alternative. However long it takes for that bank to get sorted through receivership or to get bailed out or whatever, but they are planning ahead. And I just explained how they're basically getting set up to have Bitcoin payments, Bitcoin treasury to some degree, and they're not really advertising it, although they're not necessarily hiding it either. But if things continue to happen, I know bank deposits are continuing to go down and rates go up, which means T-bills go down in value and bonds go down in value. And more and more banks become insolvent as more people put their money into money market funds to get 5% interest instead of 0% from a bank. So once again, I think they're just planning ahead and being smart. And I explained this in this Facebook post, you know, the fire movement is a group of people that are more overly interested in money than any other group I've been a part of or seen. 
And yet they never stop and ask, what is money? What is good money? What are the properties of money? What makes money bad? And I just, you know, the amount of ridicule I got just shows me that there's not enough pain being felt in America. I mean, I think the lower and middle class are starting to feel the squeeze, but anyone that's affluent or running a successful business really probably is not feeling the pain yet. But uh, like I said, I think at some point you're going to feel the pain. The amount of pain felt by everybody is probably just going to increase and continue to go up. And until you feel that level of pain or oppression or inflation, you, you really are not going to look for a solution. You're really not going to look for relief until you see the problem. Once you see that problem and you feel that problem, you become aware of it and it's part of your life, you're going to look for an exit. So like I say, you can choose to learn about Bitcoin now. You can choose to join the network now, or you can wait and be forced to join later and miss out on some of the value created in that process. And I want to end on a quote that I came across. It's from Jeffrey Miller. I think he's like a evolutionary biologist or something. I was listening to the What Is Money podcast with Robert Breedlove way back in the archives. But part three of the Jeffrey Miller series, Jeffrey says this, in a way, Bitcoin almost solved too many problems all at once for people to appreciate the genius of it. The fact that so many kind of game theoretic problems about value were solved all at once in 2009 means that for the people who get it, like they become very, very enthusiastic about it. The people that don't get it haven't quite had the time or the kind of intellectual elbow room to catch up. They just don't get it. So I kind of paraphrase there at the end. But there is this cultural lag, you know. For thousands of years, I imagine that people just kept their money, their gold, their seashells, their beads, their glass, whatever it was. They kept it on their person or hidden somewhere in their shelters. And at what point does civilization say, well, yeah, let's put it in a bank. That makes sense. Probably seems really weird. I know people that went through the Great Depression that didn't want to put money in the banks because they were scared of banks because they all failed in 1929. So they were the type that put money under their mattress and they didn't invest in the stock market because they were scared of that. So there's this cultural lag. Like, why did I grow up uh, putting money into a bank? You know, we used uh, this bank account that had like the Scottish dog logo, Scotty Savers is what it was called. And I put money in there because my parents put money in the bank. And that's just what I grew up knowing and doing. But it, it you know, it seems kind of weird that people would put their money in a bank. Uh, but at some point it becomes normal. And think about this, like in history, at what point does it make sense? Well, it's like, yeah, I'm going to, give my money to this business person and they have limited liability legal setup and I'm just going to trust them to pay me 2% dividends every month or every quarter or something like that. Or, you know, like Apple, like when does that become normal? Uh, you don't trust it until you grow up with it. Just like our kids are growing up now and they're not going to know what life was like without an iPad, without a phone, without YouTube, without doorbell cameras. It's just the norm now. But anyone over the age of 30 can kind of remember those times before all that stuff happened. So again, with Bitcoin, there's this cultural shift. We're only 14 years in, but your kids and your grandkids, you know, Bitcoin is going to become a normal part of their life, I believe. So that's just my opinion. My kids already are familiar and comfortable with Bitcoin. I should show them and demo them a little bit more, just explain how it works. Uh, there's several children's books about that. I just picked one up recently. But yeah, I hope that kind of makes sense. You know, a lot going on here in this episode. We've got supply and demand. We've got the law of plentitude or the law of abundance. We've got Metcalf models. There was actually a paper I didn't mention, and I haven't had time to read it yet. But this guy named Timothy F. Peterson has written a paper 
in Q2 of 2018. It's called Metcalf's Law as a Model for Bitcoin's Value. And I'll have to give that a read and see if I can uh, pull out some snippets there and provide even more commentary, more value on this, more understanding. So these are kind of the things I've been thinking about lately. But uh, remember, this is for entertainment purposes only, not financial advice. Do your own research. And also remember that financial independence is doable. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend. Grab some free Bitcoin through one of my favorite Bitcoin-only companies. And I'll be back with you soon.